My first semester in college, I went to Liberty University, uh, met a guy named Mike, Iron Mike. Mike was a big guy, about 6'3". He was a bodybuilder. He was the kind of guy when he did his muscles like this, the veins would kind of ripple. And Mike and I chatted a bit, and Mike talked me into wanting to sculpt this into the perfect male uh, example of muscleness. And so I went to the gym one day, and one day, uh, once, Mike and I talked about, you know, the machines and all that, and then I got on the bench press and put the bar down, and after a few minutes of not being able to push the bar up, I decided that I would give it up. I know that shocks you. It shocks you that I didn't stay with that bodybuilding stuff. Somebody said in the first service said, no kidding, that was a little hurtful. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> we're talking today about Paul. He's the guy who writes a lot of the New Testament. Paul, we looked at him a little bit last week. And he is a guy who, he's motivated by the gospel. Now, we'll talk about that in just a minute. I, I uh, made that all capitals for a reason. There are different gospels, and we'll talk about that just a little bit. But he's motivated by the gospel. And so, verse 1 begins, Paul, a servant of Christ. We're not going to go over this real much. We're, we're going to do a few more verses. But Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now, in uh, New Testament times, paper was really rare and very expensive. So you could make it out of plants called papyrus, and they would take reeds and they would smish them down, and eventually they would make paper out of that. Or they used something called vellum, which were the animal skins, and they would write on the animal skins. And we, some of that is actually, uh, at least the language sort of translates even into, or has come uh, into modern vernacular. We would say, if somebody uh, gets a diploma, sometimes we'll say they get the sheepskin. That's the kind of language they use. And that's because they used to give diplomas literally they would write them out on sheepskin. And so in the Middle Ages and even before, if you were a graduate of some university, you would roll this scroll up, this, uh, uh, this skin with your diploma, and you could take it around and you say, well, I'm a builder, and here I graduated from here. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, an architect, and I graduated from here, that kind of thing. So it looked like the writing, the Greek language looked like this. Um, uh, letters, no spacing, so you have to kind of, when you're translating, you have to figure out what words they were using, that kind of thing. It's a little complicated, but most letters in the first century, because paper was hard to get, I mean, they didn't have a Staples, you didn't go down to Staples and buy paper. Paper was difficult to, to acquire, and it was expensive. Most letters, the average letter when Paul wrote the book of Romans was about 150 words. Well, the book of Romans is over 7,000 words. And so it's unique in lots of different ways. So Paul says three things about himself. First, he says, I'm a servant of God. I'm a, I'm a servant of Christ. Now, depending on the audience, it would depend on how you would interpret that. If you were not Jewish, then to be a servant means you were subservient. You did slavey kinds of things. But to be called a servant of God to the Jewish mind was quite a compliment because that means people like Moses and David and, and Solomon, these were guys who were called servants of God. They, they did things for God. So while we look at it from maybe not a Jewish perspective, we're, kinda, we're all Gentiles, most of us anyway, uh, we would see it as subservient. Well, the Jewish mind would say, well, that's not the worst thing in the world to be as a servant of, of God. 
Then he says he's a, an apostle. We, we define an apostle like this. It's somebody who saw the risen Christ and was commissioned by the risen Christ. And that, that's a, a pretty exclusive club of people. And then he's been set apart, he says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. By the way, I don't know if you've ever wondered what he looked like. There's a, a one historian that lived long, long ago. His name is Onesiphorus. These are names back in the day. And this is how he describes Paul. So this is a guy that, from all we know, he actually saw Paul. He's a, a man small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs and a good state of body. <laughs> Whatever that means. Um, his eyebrows meeting and his nose somewhat hooked. Full of friendliness for now he appears like an angel of God. So I don't know how um, attractive Paul was, but he had a mission and he had a singular purpose. And he knew what his focus was going to be. He talks about focus in other places. He said, I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what's ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. And so he had this ability to focus on one thing. So in Romans chapter 2, that's what we're going to, chapter 1, verse 2, we're going to see what his focus was. So he says, the gospel, we're going to define it in just a second, the gospel he promised beforehand, God promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. A lot of words, we're going to break it down into bite-sized little nuggets. All right. Good news, the gospel, literally means good news. And we uh, Christianize it and we make it mean uh, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that kind of thing. But when this was written, gospel just meant good news. And so if the Caesar had a victory, let's say he sent an army out to battle and they won, he would send the gospel into all of his, uh, all of his kingdom to let them know the good news, the gospel that they had won a victory. Or they signed a treaty, he would send the gospel out so everybody would know that they had signed the treaty. And if that's the definition, if, if gospel simply means good news, then we've all shared the gospel. I mean, anytime you've ever said to someone, I got a new job, you know, I, I have a date, um, we're, we're going to have a baby, all those are good news. Uh, I, I bought gas you know, for, for less than $3 a gallon. Uh, we share the gospel all the time because we like to share good news. But what Paul wants us to know is it's not just any good news, it's the good news. And so we're going to kind of break that down today in those verses. So number one, it's the good news. This good news is the fulfillment of promises from long ago. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and through the Holy Scripture. So when Paul goes to places to preach, all he's got is the Old Testament. That's all he's got. Because that's all that's written. He, he wrote half the New Testament, but it wasn't written yet. So there has to be some stuff about Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, in fact, there's lots of stuff in the Old Testament about Jesus. Uh, you, you might recall Jesus uh, rose from the dead. Uh, he walks with a couple of dudes who are going to uh, Emmaus. He has this conversation. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, in the Old Testament, it's full of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, 
implicitly. The New Testament is about Jesus explicitly. But Paul quotes the Old Testament a bunch. He, he quotes it over and over. In fact, in the book of Romans, he quotes the Old Testament 80 times just in that book. And the Old Testament is full of language around, hey, there's a Messiah coming. It's like a billboard. So you're driving, you're driving down the road, and, and all of a sudden you have hunger pangs. And you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to go get something to eat. And so you're looking for a billboard. You're looking for, you know, a KFC or Taco Bell or uh, Chick-fil-A, wh- whatever you want. You know, um, uh, something good like McDonald's. You know, you, you're, or, or you, need, you need to use the bathroom or you need to get gas. So you're looking for an Exxon station or something. And so when you're driving down the road, you see a billboard. And the billboard typically says, next exit is blah, whatever you're looking for. And if you don't like that, then you don't go there. You go to the next place or whatever. But, but the billboard typically says, this is coming really, really soon. So get ready. It's coming soon, right? It's coming, coming soon. And then sometimes you get billboards like this. In 262 miles, it's like, what good is that? I mean, it's like, it is Bucky's, but still, I mean, so... The Old Testament is kind of like this. It's, hey, there's good news coming. The the Messiah is coming sometime. (laughs) That's kind of the Old Testament. It's literally thousands of years of history pointing to an event that hasn't happened yet. So in the book of Genesis, kind of some of the first parts of Genesis, God says... Let us, let us create man in our image. There's a picture of Jesus really early on. So he's the creator of, of time, space, and dimension. And in Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. And in Leviticus, he's this, uh, he's this holy place where we go. Uh, there's a picture of a scapegoat, which is where uh, the priest would put the sins of the nation on the scapegoat and send them into the wilderness. And that's a picture of Jesus. In number, he's, he's pictured as this guide, a, a, a cloud of a fire at night and a, cloud of, uh, a, a pillar of cloud by day. And, and so we think of God, Jesus, as our guide. In, in Deuteronomy, uh, he's the prophet that's going to be greater than Moses. And that's just the first five books. And over and over and over, the Old Testament has these pictures, these snapshots, these prophecies of Jesus. And so uh, I think about it like this. There, there are pictures of Jesus and there are prophecies about Jesus. And so a picture of Jesus would be in the story of Esther. Esther goes into the king, and um, uh, she makes petition for her people. Well, Jesus does that for us. So we, we see pictures of Jesus, but we also see prophecies about Jesus. And in the book of Psalms, I mean, there are 150 Psalms, and there are lots of references as to the Messiah. Uh, in Psalms, it says... He'd be betrayed by a friend. He's going to have his hands and feet pierced. Um, he's going to um, have his clothes gambled on by soldiers. He's going to rise from the dead. Isaiah predicts that he's going to be born of a virgin. Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah says he's going to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey and be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. You have 300 or so prophecies or pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. When Paul went to preach, he had lots of material to preach from. So this this good news, it's good news, it's just not new news. 
So Paul is saying, look, we, we've known about this. We've known this was coming for a long time. We, we didn't know when, but we knew what. And Jesus is what? Now, so the second thing he says is this. Not only was it prophesied, not only did they, we know about it, it's a person. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. Now, I don't know if any of you all have ever done like genealogical work. Like, you know, uh, you do that and you're thinking that, you know, your great, 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 great granddaddy was like the Earl of Clampett, you know, or something, you know. And, and he beca- he's, he's a bootlegger that got hung, you know. Uh, uh, so opening up that box is not always great. But for Jewish people, genealogy was huge. Because you have 12 tribes of Israel, and every tribe was allotted land. And so if I was of the tribe of Dan, then this is, I, I'm going to live here. So it would be like, if I was of the tribe of Dan, I live in the upstate. If I'm of the tribe of, you know, uh, of Judah, then I'm going to live in the Myrtle Beach area. Yeah. So they needed to know their genealogy because so, they needed to know where they were going to live. Their, their land was apportioned based on um, their forefathers. So it, it was important to know that Jesus was from the line of David. Well, what's really important is this. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and you still have a great philosophy. And you can take uh, Muhammad out of Islam and you still have rules and regulations you can live by. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, if you take Christ out of Christianity, it's like a balloon, with, a balloon without air. There's just nothing there. Uh, uh, Christianity is a relationship with God through a person and his name is Jesus. And so... In the New Testament, there are two genealogies of Christ. There's one found in Matthew, and there's one found in Matthew 1, and there's one found in Luke. But they don't match. Because one goes through Joseph, and one goes through Mary. Well, you have the same kind of genealogy. You have, you know, who who was your daddy's people, and who was your mama's people. We, We do that. We know that. So... The one that goes through Joseph, Joseph wasn't physically Jesus' father, but he was technically Jesus' father. He carried his name. And so uh, they, they, they trace it back, and Joseph's lineage, lineages lead to King David. And then they traced his mama's line back, Mary, and it goes to King David. It's important for us, the good news is a person, there's a couple things about it. It's important for us because he was a human being with a human nature. Now, now, why exactly does that matter? Well, it matters because if Jesus wasn't like us, how does he know how we feel? There's this cool verse in Hebrews that says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, Because we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, though without sin. So, Jesus has gone through what we have gone through, or go through. It's called empathy. And here it says sympathy. Empathy is when you've done it, and gotten through it, and you help somebody else go through it. So, widows are great at helping people who lose their husbands. Because they know that pain, and they know what it feels like, and they can help. 
Divorcees are often really, really good at helping people who go through divorce because they know that pain. Uh, parents of a prodigal, they, they can help other parents of prodigals because uh, they know the pain. They know what it feels like. Cowboys fans, we uh, empathize with people whose expectations are wildly disappointed and crushed like a bug. Uh, we feel your pain. And so... Uh, Jesus is a man like us, so he can feel our pain. But he's also God. And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection didn't make Jesus God. It just showed that he was God. It was, it was revelatory. It was a revealing, if you will. Now, when it says here, shown to be, the word literally means horizon or horizontal. So, in flying, and I'm not a pilot, but this, I know a little bit about this because I did the research on it. When you're flying in daytime and it's not foggy or it's not cloudy, then what you want to do is you want to find the horizon because that helps you keep your plane level. And one would think that's not that hard, but it is. Now, what do you do if it's dark or if it's cloudy or if it's foggy? Well, there's an instrument inside the instrument panel. Uh, it, it's called, let me see what it's called. It's called the artificial horizon. It's connected to a gyroscope. And it will help you. You want to keep your plane, the little picture of your plane, you want to keep the level of the horizon. A horizon is a demarcation. So at the horizon, the sky is above and the land is below. There, it, it, it's a line of demarcation. The resurrection is also... A line of demarcation. It separates Jesus from every person who's ever lived because nobody else was ever resurrected. There, was, there were people resuscitated. Lazarus, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, but he eventually died again. Not Jesus. He's different than everybody else. And what you think about that makes a world of difference. Do I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Yes or no? If you have a bookstore and you have fiction and nonfiction, where do you put the book of, resur of, of resurrection? Was Jesus, is Jesus, is the resurrection a myth? Is it like unicorns, you know, and a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Is it, is it fiction or is it fact? Is it fiction or nonfiction? You've got to decide that. I can't decide it for you. Your mama can't decide it for you. You decide that, and it is the fundamental decision that will alter the rest of your life. You believe, it will alter the rest of your life. If you don't, it will also alter the rest of your life. And just to be honest with you, really, really smart people don't believe it. One of our founding fathers, a guy named Thomas Jefferson, he didn't believe, he believed in a God, he was a deist, but he didn't believe that Jesus was God. In fact, he would read the New Testament, and he didn't like the miracles, so he just cut them out. He, he, took, he literally took a knife and cut out the miracles. You, you can see his Bible at his home. He just didn't believe. So for him, the end of the story of Jesus would be the disciples laid the body of Jesus in a tomb, rolled the stone over the opening, and they went away sad. And for him, that was the end. And for you, that might be the end. You might think, I, I can't believe in the resurrection. Well, you, you have free will. But in Christianity, Paul is saying, listen, the thing that distinguishes Christians from everything else is we believe Jesus rose from the dead. 
It is a line of demarcation. And because we do, then we feel that Jesus Christ is Lord. By the way, this kind of a, this trinity of names, Jesus is his kind of given name. By the way, that's Greek. Uh, the Hebrew name for this would be Joshua, which means God is salvation. Uh, his mama would have called him Joshua. Uh, we, we call him Jesus. It's all good. Either way, it's good. Uh, Christ is his title. Uh, he is the Messiah. Lord is his position. That's what he does uh, for a living, if you will. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. This gospel fulfills these promises. It's centered in a person. It's all about grace. Through Jesus, we receive grace. Romans talks a lot about grace. We're going to come back to this theme over and over again. Sometimes when bad things happen... We think to ourselves, why is this happening to me? You, you wake up and you, you, know, you, you, you start throwing up or uh, you, you have a flat tire. You know, oh, you, uh, like I ordered a fish sandwich yesterday and it came with cheese. And I, I'm like, oh my Lord, why is this happening to me? You know, and the more spoiled you are, the more you say that, frankly. I mean, it's kind of how it works. Why would you put cheese on fish? Thank you, Dagny. It's, a, it, it's nonsensical. Anyway, so why is this happening to me? Well, grace is when you give somebody what they need, not what they deserve. So my last semester, I talked about my first semester in college. Let me tell you about my last semester in college. I needed 15 hours to graduate. I had five classes of three hours. I went to one class, and the guy graduated from PSU, Put You to Sleep University. Uh, he was horrible. I mean, it was a snooze fest. And I went to two classes, and I'm like, I am dropping this. Drop. Now, when you're 22 and you think you know everything, you don't. <laughs> I went to the registrar, and I said, I need to pick up a class to replace this. And she looks and she's like, there's no class to replace this. I'm like, well, sure, there's a billion classes. Just give me something to replace this. And she said, I can give you another class, but it won't replace this because this is in your major and you have to have this to graduate. I've already dropped it. She said, well, you have two options. She was very nice. You can come back next semester and take it again, or you can go ask if you can get back into class. <laughs> we have a word for that. It's called awkward. Uh, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, no, I don't want to do that. So, you know, this is my posture going into his class. You know, I go in, uh, I, I, it was, he had just finished the class, and I, I go in, and I say, Professor, you know, PSU, um, I, I need this class. Now, he has a decision to make. He, he, he can let me in, he doesn't have to let me in, and I certainly didn't deserve to be in. He had a choice. And so we talked about it a little bit, and he said, why, why did you drop? <laughs> 
I was having stomach issues. And, uh, <laughs> and my girlfriend dropped me. And I was just all, oh, you know, I said, I'll just be honest with you. I don't like this class. Um, I, didn't, I didn't call him PSU, but uh, uh, I just I don't like it, but I have to have it. And he said, okay, here's what we'll do. You can come back in. I'd already missed two weeks of class. I think, I think four classes. He said, you can't miss any more, and I need you to write this little paper, and if you'll write a five-page paper, um, I'll let you back in. Basically, the paper was for what you missed. So let, here, here are some of the topics that we've been talking about. Why don't you write it about this? He was very, very, very kind. Now, what do you do with grace? Well, I accepted it, but it changed my attitude. So all of a sudden, now I'm showing up at class, and I'm thinking, you know, this guy, he did me a solid, so I'm going to pay attention, and I'm going to take notes, and I'm going to write the best papers I can write. So you don't earn grace, but once you receive grace, it changes the way you act. It's, it's very similar to Jesus and His grace. You don't earn it, but it changes the way you act. And so the gospel that Paul is preaching, it's all about grace. And one more thing, it's for everybody. Through Him, we receive grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for His name's sake. And you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. In the Jewish mind, there are Jews and not Jews. There are Jews and Gentiles. And so he's saying, look, this isn't just for Jews. In fact, the Roman church mostly would be not Jews. It's like, this is good news for everybody. Now, he, he does say, you receive grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles. Um, and he says it comes through faith. Just like the great theologian George Michael. you got to have faith. <laughs> Seven people got that. Great. Okay, super. I appreciate all of you, by the way. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Uh, George Michael was a singer uh, back in the day, and he had a song, you got to have faith. You should look it up, maybe not. Okay, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. You cannot earn it. And just like I went into the professor's office to receive grace, he didn't have to give it, but he was gracious. It is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works. Nobody struts into heaven saying, I earned salvation. If you recall, we talked about, in the close last week, John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley is the one who sort of is the pillar of, um, of Methodism, pillar of Wesleyanism, uh, uh, the great Christian thinker, great evangelist. But before John Wesley was any of that... He was a missionary to America from England, and he was horrible at it, and he wasn't saved. See, he knew about Jesus, and he was a missionary for Jesus. He just didn't have faith in Jesus. And that's the most important part. It's not to know about him. It's not to work for him. It's to have faith in him. That's the most 
important part. Then he says, To all who are in Rome, beloved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace always comes first. Grace and peace to you. It's used 17 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it in every letter he writes. This is his signature saying, grace and peace to you. So I was thinking about it. Okay, are there other signature sayings that we might know? So let's play a little game. You ready? You good? You should say something like, yeah, uh, uh, we're, we're excited. Uh, thank you. Thank you for waking up for this. Okay, um, signature sayings. We're going to start easy. Bond, James Bond. Who said that? James Bond. Great. Okay, good. All right, so good. They're going to get tougher. They're going to get tougher. I just wanted to ease you in. Um, how about um, life is like a box of chocolates? Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. I don't know what the other people said. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mama says it, but other bodies. Somebody said it first. Kelly Clarkson, but there was somebody before her. Does anybody know who said it? The great philosopher? Not Bob Dylan. (laughs) His first name is Friedrich. No, that's good though. Nietzsche. Nietzsche said it. Nietzsche. Okay. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll make it easier. Um, well, isn't that special? Who said that? Great. Uh, you're fired? Donald Trump. Great, great, great. Uh, live long and prosper? Great. <laughs> How would I know that you would know that? Okay. Um, just keep swimming? Dory, that's right. Good for you. Uh, how about uh, that's all, folks? Yep. And what's up, Doc? Oh, that's bugging. Who said what? That's all, folks. Porky Pig. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, you were pretty good, except for Nietzsche. That's all right. You did okay. So Paul would say grace and peace to you, and he always connected it to where grace and peace comes from. It was never peace and grace. Always grace and peace. Grace comes first, that leads to peace. And he always gives you the source of grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And someone said, grace and peace to you, that is the gospel in five words. Grace and peace are offered to you, which is awesome. So, let's close. Let's go back one verse to verse 6 here. You have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and your party is already there and they're already seated and you walk in and the hostess says, how many? And you say, oh no, I'm with them. We're already seated. You know, I love that, don't you? When there's a big line of people, they're, they all got their little buzzers or I think people phone, they use your phone now. Uh, everybody's waiting in line, but your party is already here. Like, I love it most when I, my party's already here and Miriam has already ordered for me. Oh, oh. So the line is here, you know, and you just kind of, I do my staying alive walk. I, I, I come up staying alive.
And the, the hostess will say, uh, that'll be uh, 700 hours. Uh, you know, the wait is 700 hours. It's like, no, not for me, because I'm with them. You know, I love that. It's the best. So when it says, uh, you've been called to belong, you, you, you're, in, you're in the team. So uh, yesterday, Elise played volleyball, and, and you talk to people that aren't, you know, people from your school, and they'll say, uh, which one's yours? Oh, she's number 10. That, that number 10's mine. You know, that's what it feels like to be in the family. When it says you've been called to belong, Jesus is in heaven, and he's pointing to you, and he's saying, he's mine. She's with me. But it takes faith. Some people are reluctant to fly on airplanes. They might know about aerodynamics. They might know about, you know, whatever. This guy isn't helping, uh, honestly. Uh, he ain't helping, but anyway. Pete, my, my dad was reluctant to fly. Eventually, I think he, uh, he and my mom flew to, to Hawaii and back, but... It took a long time. And I'll tell you why I think he didn't like the idea of flying. My daddy was a truck driver for years, 30-something years. He drove a truck. When you're a truck driver, you're in control. You, you set the course. You set the speed. You turn when you want to. You don't turn when you want to. You use your blinkers. You manage this rig. Daddy drove an 18-wheeler, a big rig. You are in control of that rig. And in your life, some of you really like to be in control. Because when you get on an airplane, you're not in control anymore. You depend on the expertise of the pilots. You depend on aerodynamics. I mean, you, you depend on uh, the... the the ship being, you know, uh, sound, that kind of thing. And you can go to the airport, you can go out to GSP, and you can watch the planes take off, and you can say to yourself, I believe in flight. And you can study uh, aerodynamics, how the, the, the shape of the wing causes something heavy if you have enough speed to lift off the ground, and how the Wright brothers kind of figured it out first. You can know uh, about aerodynamics, and you can believe that pilots are well-trained and that the one in the cockpit, he knows what he's doing or she knows what she's doing. But that's not enough. Because until you walk down uh, the, the gangway and until you get on the plane and until you find your seat and buckle up and until they close the door and they taxi out and until they take off, you haven't flown. You can know all about it. You can know everything about flying. But until you get in the plane and you take off, you don't have faith. And you can know all about Jesus. And you can know every song that we ever sang in Sunday school. This little light of mine. You can know them all. Father Abraham had many sons. I know them all. I've been in vacation Bible school a thousand times. You can know every song, you can memorize every verse, and that's not enough. You can know all about Jesus. That's not faith. 
Vance Habner was this pastor from many, many years ago. And he tells this story about, this was back in the day where, where husbands went to work and wives stayed at home and homemaded, and that was kind of how it worked. And so the guy comes home, the guy comes home from work, and his wife is just upset. He said, honey, what happened? He, she said, something really bad happened today. A man came to the door, and he knocked on the door, and he said, ma'am, do you know Jesus? And I was so frustrated, I just closed the door in his face. And the husband said, well, honey, why didn't you say, I sing in the choir every Sunday down at our church? And why, why didn't you say, I'm in leadership in the women's ministry down at our church? And why didn't you say, I fill three boxes for Samaritan's Purse every Christmas? Why didn't you tell him that? And she said, that wasn't the question. He asked me, do you know Jesus? There's no more important question then do you have a relationship with Jesus? Not do you know of Him. Not do you serve Him. Do you have a relationship with Him? It is everything. There's no more important question ever than this. It has eternal ramifications. It's the most important question. So Paul begins Romans and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you all about Jesus. You who are called saints. You who are on the team. You who have placed your faith in Jesus. It is so easy to do. I was seven years old. I understood one thing. I, I'm, I'm a sinner. I don't always do the right thing. I make mistakes. I willfully choose to do wrong. But I know somebody who will forgive my sins and guide my life. And I gave, I put my faith in Jesus. I knew about Jesus before that. But at seven years old, I put my faith in Jesus. I prayed a real simple prayer. Father, thank You for sending Jesus to take away my sin. You know what I did? I basically went into the professor's office and said I made a mistake and I need grace. And we all can do it. Father, I make mistakes and I need grace because we all need it. Let me pray. Thank You, Father, for the message today for grace, which we don't earn or deserve, but which you provide so freely to anyone who asks. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us unto yourself. We ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.